Oftentimes, when Memorial Day comes around, and I hear stories of bravery and sacrifice, and the people who've come before us and risked their lives for the things that were important to them, even gave their lives for what they believed to be true, I often also stop and I just think about my own incredibly safe life. I think about how even though I have never served in the military, there are undoubtedly opportunities that I have had to take risks for what is important to me and what I believe to be true and have failed to take them. That I haven't shown the kind of courage that we see in the scriptures. I think about songs like Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War and how often St. Paul will go back to such a metaphor to remind us that we are involved in a cosmic war of good versus evil and that this cosmic war is no place for cowardice or half measures. And as I read a passage like this, I think about how what Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke are doing is sort of military in nature. Their strategy, that is. They are crossing into a new territory, as of yet unconquered by the gospel, and they are establishing what is called a bridgehead, which is uh, initially meant the, the enemy side of an actual bridge, but has come now to mean an advanced position seized in a hostile territory, from whence you can stage different advances and to which you can actually retreat if need be. And they do that here in Philippi, and they do it quickly. Last week, we saw that after three years, they decided the first missionary journey was great, but what about a second missionary journey? And so together they go off, a little change of teams. Instead of Paul and Barnabas, it's Paul and Silas. They pick up Timothy, and then they pick up Luke, and as they're leaving the Middle East, they're moving out of Galilee and Judea and Samaria. They wanted to go into the province of Asia, but they were kept from doing that. God forbade them. The Spirit wouldn't let them go this way or this way, and so they kept moving forward and then found themselves looking out at an expanse of water. And they thought, well, I guess we're supposed to sail somewhere. And then Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia calling to them, come on over to Macedonia and help us. Last week you got a color map. If you weren't here, I think there are still a few left in the back. This week you've got a black and white map because the pastor's Dutch and we are saving money. But open up that map and have a look. As they leave... Troas, and as they go out toward Macedonia, this is an enormous step. This is Jesus and the Spirit saying, you're not going here, you're not going back to the same places, you're not going to go over the same ground, we've got something new in store for you. You are bringing the gospel into Europe. Now with such an enormous undertaking on their shoulders, we might think that they would take a few days and prepare talk about it, what they were going to do when they got there, what would be their approach, maybe brush up on their Latin, kind of just get their heads on straight and come to terms with what's going on, but they don't. See, they've, they've had so many doors closed that now that this enormous door lays open, they are chomping at the bit to get to the work. They get right on the boat and head out. And you notice, if you've read Acts before, that right around here, the book turns into sort of a travel log off and on, 
And some people love that. I love it. I like to get on my maps and look at where they went, how long they stayed here, every trip, every stop, every, the duration of everything. It seems that as soon as Luke gets into the stuff he was present for, he gets really into the details. And so we know then exactly what they did. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, I guess, Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, known, of course, the world over for its tricolored ice cream. No, that's Naples, that's Italy. This is Greece, this is barely into Europe. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. They didn't have any ice cream there, and Paul and, and Silas were very disappointed, I understand. But what we read about this, as they land, they continue onward along the Ignatian Way, which was like the I-96 of their day, only in better shape, and they take it straight to the city of Philippi, which is a, a major city in its district of Macedonia, which was divided up into four districts. So here's, here's what we have. I'm going to give you a little background because we are going to be in Philippi for sometime here, at least a couple more weeks. And this place had been established not just as a Roman city, but as a Roman colony, which was the highest kind of city you could be in the Roman world. And it had been established as a Roman colony to commemorate a great military victory, a victory of Caesar Augustus, but before he was Caesar Augustus, back when he was just Octavian uh, for a while there, his name was a symbol too, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So this guy had had great victory, and it was actually in a civil war that took place after the, the assassination of Julius Caesar. You guys know all about that, right? Brutus and all the co-conspirators, he stabs them, and Julius Caesar says, at two, and he's like, at all of you too, and then they kill him. And what you may not know is after that, there was actually a civil war. The empire strikes back. At least the part of the empire that was upset about the murder of Julius Caesar, especially his nephew, which was Octavian. And they had a great victory, a decisive victory. It turned it in their favor. Eventually, Brutus wound up killing himself. And so, partially out of celebration and partially out of stra strategy, they established this Roman colony. The normal way to do this is to say, we're going to find somewhere that we've gone into where we don't have absolute kind of dominion and we don't have as much sort of uh, uh, stake in the place as we'd like and as much influence. And they would people it, they would populate it with veterans, particularly those from the war in question. So they bring all these retired legionnaires in, and the place, even though it's barely in Europe, is basically a carbon copy of Rome. It acts like Rome. It's treated legally as if it was in Italia. And it's, it's like a mini Rome, and, and all these Roman soldiers who are committed to the notion of the empire are there, and the, and the idea from the very beginning was that they would kind of Romanize the area. They would promote the values and religion. They would promote the language, the Latin language. They would do all of this stuff. And because of that, even though they were far from Rome, it felt like you were in Rome. A whole city of military veterans who owe Caesar a great debt of gratitude. It's, it's a mini Rome. That's the vibe. That's the lifestyle. It's all the same. To me, this almost seems like a metaphor for what the church is doing. 
And you go, wait a minute, colony? No, 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 we don't want to be colonial. We don't want to colonize. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about displacing people's language or culture or local customs, but rather the notion of everywhere we go, we set up outposts. We call them churches. And from those outposts go out the values of the church, the gospel, the good news. Out of those outposts comes the light shining into the darkness, comes acts of love and forgiveness and mercy, and that leavens the entire area, as Jesus said. We bring the gospel, we bring the kingdom of God. We bring, we bring the feel of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what Paul and his company are about to do as they set up this bridgehead. And so having arrived, the, the few days they spend just kind of getting the lay of the land, and then on the Sabbath, we're told in verse 13 that they go out, outside the gates, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. To me, that's just full of questions. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about what's going on here exactly. What are they looking for? What do they find? Why were they looking where they were looking? It is the Sabbath, so there would be Jewish worship. It was always Paul's normal practice up to this point and afterward. Then when he comes to a new city, the first thing he does is go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews from the Scripture that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But in this case, we find him going outside of the city to a riverside where he supposes he will find a place of prayer. Why did he expect or suppose that? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, remember, this is a mini-Rome. And this is a time during which uh, it's, it's a crapshoot whether R Jews are even allowed in Rome at any given time. And so this mini-Rome is rather closed, religiously speaking. There were arches outside of the city where an inscription warned that any unrecognized religions would not be allowed within the city walls. That they would have to stay, like how and now you have to be like 20 feet from the door before you can smoke. You had to be a certain distance from the city before you could bring any of this strange smoke or fire and worship gods that were not recognized by the Roman system. Primarily the imperial cult worshipping the emperor and then worshipping Greco-Roman gods and different idols with different sorts of offerings. This was all allowed, but certainly not Judaism. There could not be a synagogue inside the walls. Why, though, do they go down to the riverside? Well, that was because it was the normal practice of the Jewish people, wherever they could, to make their places of worship along running water because of the ceremonial ritual washings that take place. It made everything easier, more convenient, and so Paul's just being smart here. He's, and some people have said, well, they were there for a few days. Someone must have told them, you know, go out of the city, take a right, go down to the river. But no, it says they supposed, they guessed this is where they would find worship. Probably seems that they've asked around and no one knew anything. Judaism? No, no, no. You don't know where you, you're in Philippi. Yeah, if you want to worship one of the real gods, one of the Roman pantheon, you're in the right place. But Judaism? So they go where they think is the best shot, outside the city, down to the river. But what exactly do they find when they get there? What should we be picturing? Now, my mind immediately goes to like the flannel graph stuff I saw as a kid, which is a nice rolling river, nice green meadow, and a few women kind of praying there together. Maybe. That's one possibility. 
It's often been claimed that this was a sort of loose gathering, unorganized gathering or semi-organized gathering of women in lieu of actual formal Jewish worship. Right? So, so this, this notion that, that they would just come together and, and kind of pray and, and do their thing and then go home because there was not an actual synagogue present. Maybe it's been said there were not enough Jewish men in the whole town to establish a synagogue. You needed a quorum of only ten married men, but again, this is a city that's built on Roman values and populated by these retired soldiers, so maybe there weren't enough people there. Another possibility is that what they find is a synagogue. Maybe that's what we should be picturing. The the word synagogue, like the word church, simply means a gathering place where people come together, or rather, a people gathered. And so it could mean that this is the synagogue. They've come down, they've found it. In fact, the word place of prayer is sometimes used of a synagogue. It's not so much important what they find. The question in either case is, why are there only women there? Where are the men? We don't know the answer to that one either. There's been conjecture. We know this is not like a spontaneous prayer meeting like what we see at Mary's house on the night that Peter was released from prison because this is the Sabbath. Worship on the Sabbath would be as formal as you could make it, as close to synagogue worship, which was as close to temple worship as you could get on any given Sabbath. So perhaps what is going on is that the women met at a different time from the men, although that's not something we see frequently in the New Testament Jewish world. Perhaps this was a separate gathering of unmarried women. Maybe the women who were with their husbands came to one service, and then the women who had no husband came to another. Maybe they're separately worshiping because they're not actually Jews. And that's something we're going to see in a minute. These are God-fearers, or at least Lydia was. She's someone who, even though she's got a pagan background, she's now worshiping the God of Israel, but has not actually proselytized and officially become a Jew. Whatever the case, we find these people outside. They're outside the city walls. They are outside the normal structure of worship. There are just some women gathered together, and this fits with what we see throughout chapter 16. As they're in Philippi, three stories of conversions are highlighted amongst undoubtedly many others, and all of them are people who are in some sense outside of what you'd expect to see highlighted. The first one is a woman, and a Gentile woman at that. The second one is a slave. We'll see that next time. And then the third one is a Gentile who works for the man, i.e. Rome. Luke is highlighting the fact that, yeah, sure, the gospel has now spanned the Aegean Sea, but more importantly, the gospel has actually spanned all of these gender and social and ethnic and and even religious hurdles to reach out to everyone. Everyone is going to hear the gospel as long as Paul is the one preaching it. At the same time, I have to wonder if these guys were a little confused. Because they got this message, this wide-open door. Come on, and and we're waiting for you, right? Isn't that the subtext? Come on and help us. Forget Asia. This is where you're wanted. It was a man in the vision. They arrive. I wonder if maybe Paul thought, oh, I'm going to find this man. I'm going to find out who he actually is. No men here. Only women. 
Possibly, I think probably, no actual synagogue. We've got people who've gone down to the river to pray. That's about it. And you could think, well, that's disappointing. You could allow that to kind of frustrate you. You know, we, we actually have gone out into new and uncharted territory at God's request, at God's command. The least he could have done is had a welcoming party waiting. A lot of people, a big conversion. Maybe a whole synagogue would turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, they find some, some women gathered together to pray. From a human perspective, this isn't going their way. And they are now in even more hostile territory than they were before. They're now entering into a Roman world that looks like Roman world. It all has to do, though, with the perspective. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about Jed and Sam. They were a couple of good old boys in Montana. And one summer, they were saying, how are we going to make money this summer? We've got stuff to buy. Like David, they wanted to buy a bunch of fireworks and blow them up. And then they got the news that there was a new program, a government program. There had been so many wolves that had been stealing uh, cattle and killing animals and, and affecting farmers and things that there was a program the government was going to actually pay people for every wolf they managed to capture alive because they were protected. And they looked at each other and said, how much? $5,000 a wolf? We've got it made. And they weren't bad at it. They set out. They had their provisions. They had their backpacks. They started tracking. They looked up on YouTube how to track wolves. They found them. They were following them. They followed them deep, deep, deep in the woods. But after about a week, week and a half, they still had found no wolves. They were getting a little frustrated. They were kind of getting a little short with each other. And then one night, in the middle of the night, suddenly Sam woke up with a start. And he looked around. And all around him he saw yellow eyes glowing. In the fire that was dying, he could see glistening saliva and teeth bared, wolves closing in. And he nudged his friend. He said, Jed, wake up! We're rich! That's the story, and I'm sticking to it. It has to do with your perspective. Paul's coming in into a hostile land. He's coming into what some might see as an underwhelming reception, and yet he thinks, well, here are some women who are gathered. And they are gathered by a river because they are worshiping God. They have been reading his word. They are praying to him. They are ready to hear the gospel. And we are going to be rich today, spiritually speaking. And perhaps chief amongst them, the leader of the group, was a woman named Lydia who becomes the first European Christian. We know very little about her. All we know is what's in these few verses. I'll rehearse it now. First of all, she's from a city called Thyatira. You remember that perhaps from our study of the book of Revelation. It was a city famous for its lavish dyed textiles. And we know that she worked in those textiles. And of all the colors of high-end garments and fabrics that she might sell, purple goods were the highest, and that's what she sold. She was in a luxury business. Only the rich dressed in purple. In fact, you remember in that parable, Jesus is trying to establish real quick that this guy is very, very rich. He said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That one little sentence is meant to tell you everything you know about this guy. Extravagance. So Lydia is in this business. She's undoubtedly doing well. And apparently she is the head of her household, it seems. Meaning that she does not have a husband in that setting. 
She, she'd never been married, perhaps. Perhaps she was a widow. Or perhaps being in the Roman world where it was easy to divorce your wife, she had been divorced. We don't know, but she's the head of her household and she's doing fine. And finally, we know that she is a worshiper of God, synonymous with what you often read as God-fearer, a Gentile who worships the God of Israel, reads the scripture of Israel, but has not become an actual Jew. Same as Cornelius, by the way, uh, earlier on, the first Gentile convert that, that Peter makes. And so, as she is there, as they are praying, Paul approaches, he sits down in the normal position of teaching and begins talking with them about who Jesus is. We don't have anything laid out about what he said, but we're sure it's the same thing as always. Jesus' sinless life, his death, his resurrection, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And she listens. In fact, the way verse 14 is often translated, I think, is just a little weak because of a limitation in the English language. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. One who heard us. That sounds like she listened once. She heard us. It happened one time. But it's actually the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means an ongoing. She was hearing us. Not just she listened, but she had been listening is usually used for something that goes on over a long period of time. Perhaps she listened to them more than one Sabbath day, and it's just kind of compressed in the telling of it. Or perhaps he chooses this word because she was just listening long and hard, thoughtfully, carefully, counting the cost, considering the claims of this Jesus. And what happened in the end is that God opened her heart. That's what we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. This is how she went from being someone who was dead in her sins, spiritually blind and lost, to someone who was a believer. Eyes were opened from death to life because the Spirit was involved. God opened her heart to what? Well, the ESV says opened her heart to pay attention. She was already paying attention. The King James says the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the things which were spoken, getting warmer. I like the NIV here. I think it really captures the thrust of the Greek. The Lord opened her heart to respond. She was able to respond because the Lord opened her heart. The Greek word there actually means to turn toward and hold on to. God opened her heart as she heard these things, as she was listening and listening, so that she turned toward them and grabbed onto them. She responded to them. And that happens sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't. In fact, just turn back a few pages here to Acts 13. Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. Sometimes that's what happens. People hear the gospel and they thrust it aside or quite literally shove it away from them. And so they went to someone else, preached the same gospel. And what happens in verse 48? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as God opened their hearts and opened their ears and opened their eyes, they believed, they responded, and they were born again. This is something we all need in order to become Christians. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Only when our hearts have been opened can we even respond to the gospel. The hearts of the lost are hardened, they are darkened. But our God is the God who said, let there be light, and get this, this is the craziest part, there was light. Light shined into the darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus speaks and the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our ears, the darkness flees. And I think in light of this, we have to acknowledge that there are two extreme views of evangelism that we need to avoid. Two equally unbiblical approaches to winning people to Christ. The first one is the one that puts it all on me. It says it's all on my shoulders. I have to say the right things. I have to say them in the right way. I have to come in with clever turns of phrase and words to bend this person's will in order to convince them to make a commitment or repeat a prayer or some such thing. By the way, first of all, Scripture says the goal is that they repent and believe. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Faith and repentance. Both of those are not something that we create in the person who hears us. Neither of those is your invention. You don't need to stir up someone's emotions in order to dredge up repentance. No, Acts 11, just a couple chapters before that one. God grants repentance that leads to life. That's what they said when they heard about the Gentiles believing. They said, we heard your story. It's obvious to us. Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a gift, a gift from God. So is faith. In fact, it's when Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, about 10 years later, Philippians 1.29, that he says that the, the faith that they have has been granted to them, along with the suffering that they have as well. So that's one extreme. We want to get away from that. The, that, that will crush you, right? You put your, on your shoulders, I've got to say the right thing. If I say the wrong thing, I may mess up someone's eternal destiny. That'll make you stop trying, won't it, pretty quick? The other extreme may be even more dangerous. And that's the one that says, I need to do nothing. It's all God's business. He's sovereign. He'll save who he'll save. He'll do it with or without puny little me. It's all above my pay grade. I'll let God handle all that stuff. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from John Piper. He's speaking of God opening the eyes of those who are blind. And he says, someone must speak the gospel. God does not open the eyes of the heart to see nothing. Why would God unstop the ears of the deaf so they can hear silence? No, the gospel must be preached. And in that preaching of the gospel is when the Spirit moves, or in that reading of the gospel, or in that conversation about the gospel. By the way, when you hear that preaching of the gospel and everyone gets nervous, I'm no preacher, it just means proclaiming, making a statement, saying this is true. We all do it all the time. We need to do it with the gospel. The biblical view can be seen in Paul here in this passage. He seeks out those who are open to his message. He delivers it faithfully. Yes, he is aware that only when the Spirit opens their hearts will any of them be saved. But he also knows that the Holy Spirit opens hearts only when the gospel is conveyed. It's a paradox. 
It's something we can't fully understand, but we can fully obey. And we're called not to fully understand it, just to obey it. And this tells us, first of all, that we must speak. I know I rip on it an awful lot, but there's that cliche floating around out there. Preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words. You always have, because it's news. It's news. It's a message that you're conveying. Now, granted, if your life completely contradicts the message, you're going to negate it. People are going to say, well, that's obviously just nothing. It's just talk. But the gospel itself must be conveyed with words. So we must speak. Secondly, we must pray. Because if it's not my words that do the saving, it's the Spirit working through my words, I would be a fool not to bathe the whole thing and saturate it in prayer, saying, God, I'm going to speak. I want you, please, to move in that. Sometimes you have three seconds to pray before you have a spontaneous conversation with someone. Sometimes you're praying for the nerve and the moment and the opportunity and the open door to bring the gospel to someone for years. And you can pray and pray and pray and pray. And I've known people who haven't prayed one iota about bringing the gospel to someone and they tried sloppily to do it themselves, thinking, oh, I I can make it happen. I can show them what they... And then they've been angry at God because it didn't work out. We must speak. We must pray. They're both necessary. It's like making coffee, right? You need water. You need grounds. The water is just important as the grounds, by the way. It's got to be good, clean, preferably filtered water. But I I remember we used to have this coffee maker. I miss this coffee maker. You put the the whole beans in the top, and you put the water in, and then you set the, the alarm in the morning, and you'd wake up to the sound of it grinding the beans. Ring! And then it would shoot them into a a little filter, and then it would brew the coffee, and you wake up to the smell of coffee. But it was a a real bear to clean the thing out. And by the time you got done cleaning it out, sometimes you forgot to put more beans in. There was more than one morning where I woke up to that sound, and I got up and said, oh, coffee! And what was waiting for me was slightly discolored hot water. And you know what? I didn't say, this thing's broken. It didn't work. I said, oh, I forgot one of the two main ingredients of coffee. Forgetting one of the two main ingredients of evangelism. Prayer and opening your mouth boldly to bring the gospel as well as you can, trusting that God will be at work in it. And in this case, he certainly is. An entire household comes to faith for the first of two times in this chapter during this stay in Philippi. Lydia, along with her whole household, is baptized immediately. By the way, going public with this Jesus thing would probably not have been good for her business, for her lifestyle, for her station in Philippi, but she doesn't care. She's been overcome by the Spirit, and she is not going to look back. And immediately as well, her faith gives birth to works, showing there was certainly something to it. God opened her heart, now she opens her home opens it up to these traveling missionaries. See, they hadn't called ahead and made arrangements where they were going to stay. God took care of it. This woman hears the gospel. She says, baptize me. I believe. She comes out of the water and says, where are you guys staying? And she even had to prevail upon them to stay with her. Same word that's used with the guys on the road to Emmaus, or I think perhaps the married couple on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus was with them, they prevailed upon him. Don't keep going. It's getting dark. Stay with us. She says, you can stay with me. Remember, she's doing well. She's probably got a large villa. 
And there would be some sacrifice here. Right? If, you're, if you're a woman of means, you've got servants, you've got all your stuff exactly where you want it, how it's supposed to be, and now you're like, oh, four random guys who've just gotten off a boat and then walked you know, through the desert. Yeah, come on in. But she wants to share the home that God has granted her. She wants to share the gifts that God has given her. She wants to give and give alike because of what she's been given. All of her sins, which has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so she prevailed upon them to stay. And this place becomes their bridgehead as they move further into Europe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look ahead to verse 40... We read this, there's this whole thing we're going to look at next time about the Philippian jailer and them being arrested and, and all this intrigue. But at the end of all that, we read, So then they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What does that tell us? It tells us the church meets at Lydia's house. She's got the place that can fit the church. She was the first Christian. She probably brought the gospel to many of the other Christians who now make up the church. This is their bridgehead. This is the center of their worship. And ten years later, when Paul writes back to this, this church in what we call the book of Philippians, a letter to this very group, probably still meeting in this same home, he's writing from prison, and among other things, he writes to thank them for their generous financial gifts. Seems like perhaps Lydia has set the tone for this worshiping community. And in fact, in Philippians 4, Paul speaks of, quote, the women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. I would bet green money that those are the same women he found there praying by the river his first day in Philippi. Next week, we're going to meet the Philippian jailer, and we're also going to see him welcoming Paul into his house, coming to faith. We're going to see him and his whole household getting baptized, but we're not going to learn his name unless his name is Philippian Jailer, and that's why he felt like he should get into that line of work, but that's unlikely. There's something about Lydia that makes her significant. The first convert, a leader in the church, a giving person. And this is something that we should be striving to embody. We, we approach the gospel not on our own two feet, but saying, God, open my heart and open my ears and open my eyes. Open, open anything I've closed off within me. If I've walled off some sin, open that up as well. If I've, if, I've, if I've closed my ears because I know something might be said that's going to challenge where I stand right now, open those as well. She approaches listening carefully and in the Spirit. And as soon as she is convicted, she's baptized, and as soon as she comes to faith, she starts giving. She starts exercising the spiritual gifts that she has. She shows that her faith is the kind of faith that produces fruit. What an example that is for Christians, all of us, everywhere. So think about the city of Philippi, how it was a colony for Rome and a bridgehead for the gospel. I, I can't help but think that this is a, a microcosm, a metaphor for what the church ought to be today. As we, the church, are spread out over the entire face of the earth, we're not to be conformed by the world around us, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And just like Philippi was a, a mini Rome, a little Rome, maybe far away from Rome proper, but it felt the same. It had the same values. It had the same vibes. So may our church be an outpost of the imperial city. 
the city of Jerusalem and the heavens, the city where we will one day see our Savior. May we bring the truth of the gospel, the faith, the hope, and love that come from the Spirit of God out into this world. May we be like those men who were set there and said, you will make this a colony for Rome and bring Roman values. May we, not by force, but by service, not in pride, but in humility, bring the the values of our king and our kingdom into our community. May we be like Lydia. May we be those who would see the gospel, hear the gospel, and respond to the gospel. And then may we, like Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas, Go forward from this bulkhead, this bridgehead here. Not content to just stay, but say, this is a place to which we can retreat together and be rested and recharged. This is a place from which we can stage advances to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the outsides of our community and to those who have been forgotten and who are outside of the notice of this world. May we be like them and may we glorify our God in the process. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples we see in this passage. We know that none of the people we read about in the book of Acts are sinless or perfect, and Lord, we don't want to lift them up too high, but when we see an example of selfless missionaries bringing a gospel and of godly women hearing that gospel and responding in humility and faith and repentance, And then turning around and responding in acts of love and hospitality, Lord, we certainly are tempted to say, make us like Lydia. Make us like Paul and Silas. Take our self-interest and dash it away. Take anything that we have blocked off in our hearts and open it up. And Lord, make us receptive to the leading of your word, that we would follow wherever it leads. Whether the door is closed, we would move on. And where the door is open, Lord, we would follow you knowing that you will be with us, never leaving us or forsaking us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.